Well, as you know, we've been in this series, The End Times According to Jesus. And sometimes you'll find among Christians, and it may even be found here among us this morning, that there are those who believe that the doctrine of the end times, those, the truths about what is coming in the future, has no practical relevance for the Christian life. The sentiment is sometimes expressed like this. They say, I really don't care about what happens at the end of the world. I just want help on how to live my life today. Give me some practical tips for my life. Don't talk about a distant future that has no bearing upon my life. And while I can sympathize with a brother or sister who feels this way, uh, I think that there are things that we're often missing. We fail to realize that there is much that the Bible says in terms of the practical relevance of the doctrine of the end times. Jesus and the apostles routinely speak about the practical benefit in thinking about and studying about what is coming and will transpire at the world's end. They, Jesus and his, his apostles, regularly argue that this biblical eschatology is essential for biblical living. In other words, the Bible is clear that in order for you to live a way today that pleases God, you must have in this, your sights what is planned at the end of the world. We need to know what the Bible says in order for us to live today. And why is this? Why is it that you and I need to know what's going to transpire in the future for us to live fruitful, productive lives today? Well, the reason is, as Jesus made clear, that when He returns, He's going to hold all people accountable. Every, there is a reckoning that is coming for everyone on how we live. And therefore, the question is, with Him coming back in the future, are we ready for Him to return? Are we ready for that reckoning that is coming for each and every one of us? And so that is the question for you this morning. Are you ready for Him to come back? Are you ready if He returned today? We've been studying the teaching of our Lord Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21, regarding the events of the end of the age. And in fact, I invite you to turn there in your personal copy of God's Word or tap there through your Bible app. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pew rack directly in front of you, and you can find our passage this morning on page 1047, 1047, Luke chapter 21. If you've been with us through the parts of this series, then you know that this chapter is full of prophecies. But Jesus isn't interested in His disciples simply knowing information, for it's simply to go into their heads and they now know some facts about what's going to come at the end of the age. But He desires that His disciples, and He desires that you and I, by extension, would live faithfully in light of what is coming in the end. He wants us to be ready for His return. Again, the question is, are you ready for that return? Are you ready if He is going to come back today? In our passage this morning, Jesus wants to help us get ready. And so if you're this morning going, I don't know if I'm ready. Well, we need to pay attention to what our Lord Jesus has for us because He's going to help us to get ready this morning. And so I'd invite you to follow along as I read our passage, verse, 
uh, 34 through 38 in Luke chapter 21. So we'll pick up in verse 34 of Luke chapter 21. Follow along as I read. Jesus said, But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May God impress its truths upon all our hearts. Now, as you can see in the verses that we have before us this morning, there's the very end of Jesus' sermon, the very end of his teaching, verses 34 through 36. And then verse 37 and 38, the last two verses of the chapter, are a summary statement by Luke, the author, describing the activity of Jesus during this Passion Week. Again, we are in this week, the final week of Jesus' life that will end on a Friday with Jesus being nailed on the cross. This is the context for which Jesus teaches these things. But even though Jesus knew that that's what awaited him yet just a few days future, we see here this summary statement that Jesus did not hole up somewhere. He was not afraid of what was coming. He did not... uh, shy away from the task that his father has given him. What he said when he was 12, that he must be about his father's business, he continues here until the bitter, the bitter end. And so it says that he uh, was teaching daily in the temple. At night he went out, lodged on the mount called Olivet. I believe that he most likely went just up over the Mount of Olives and even uh, stayed at the house of his friends, uh, Martha and Mary. In Lazarus, in in a little uh, town called Bethany. And then he came back early in the morning, and the people continued to go to him to hear his teaching. But Jesus remained faithful in his task. He boldly continued to come back and to teach the people throughout this week, even though he knew that his enemies were circling, even though he knew what would result in a few days. But for the remainder of our time this morning, I want us to focus on verses 34 to 38 to look at the final words of Jesus' teaching here that he gave to his disciples on the Mount of Olives and to examine what he is saying here. And in this passage this morning, I want to show you two steps that Jesus gives you to be ready for his return. He has talked about in verses 25 and following the fact that he is going to come back and that there is going to be judgment when he returns. And so here in verses 34 to 36, he wants his disciples to be ready. He wants his church to be ready. And so we're going to look at two steps that he gives us here in these verses. The first step that you need to take in order to be ready for the return of Jesus Christ to this earth is number one, to guard your heart. To guard your heart from spiritual sabotage. To guard your heart from spiritual sabotage. And we see this in verses 34 and 35. Jesus begins here with a warning about the things that can make someone unprepared. You'll look at verse 34, there's a command here, watch yourselves, he says. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. This verb carries the idea of being continually on the lookout. 
He wants uh, us to be watching out or to be on our guard. This verb is used 24 times in the New Testament, and it means to pay careful attention to something, to have a sharp eye, to not let anything pass our gaze. And so we need to ask ourselves, all right, Jesus, I'll, I'll pay attention. You got my attention. What is it that you want me to be watching out for? Well, he says to watch out for our hearts. Do you see that in verse 34? But watch yourselves, lest your hearts. There's a focus here that we are to be looking primarily at what is going on inside of us. When the Bible talks about our hearts, it is talking about the control center of our lives. We might today talk about our minds that that decide where we go and what we do. But the Bible describes it as our heart. Our heart thinks, our heart feels, our heart decides, our heart loves, our heart craves, our heart directs our behavior. And Jesus says that we need to watch out for our hearts because there are things that can sabotage our spiritual life, that can cause our hearts to change, to turn away from that which is most important. He wants us to be on guard, that our hearts are not drawn away from what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians 11, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Jesus wants our hearts to be wholly devoted to him. But he knows that there are things out there, landmines, that we can be sabotaged by. And he's going to warn against some ungodly behaviors. But I I want you to see, as we said, that Jesus identifies the heart as the source of the problem. All of our words, our thoughts, and our deeds flow out of our hearts. This is Jesus taught this earlier in this same gospel, Luke, in Luke chapter 6. He says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. You could broaden that to say out of the abundance of the heart, the person acts. All that we do, all that we think, all that we say flows out of our hearts. And so Jesus says, watch out for your hearts. And so Jesus, get the point here, Jesus is not just saying, looking at your behavior. We're going to need to examine our behavior, but we need to allow our eyes of our hearts to go from our behavior to trace it all the way back to our hearts. We can't just change the fruit on the tree, we need to change the tree itself. Now, the command in verse 34 here, to watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down, is it reminded me of Solomon's exhortation in Proverbs chapter 4. Maybe a familiar verse to you. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. I have to imagine Jesus had this in the background of his mind as he taught these things, knowing to his disciples that they must keep watch over their hearts with all vigilance. That idea of vigilance and watching out, right? Guarding, be on guard. Why is that? Because Solomon says, from it flow the springs of life. We are to be vigilant over our hearts to see where our hearts turn for pleasure, to see where our hearts turn for joy and for satisfaction, for approval, for life itself. We, as 
image bearers of God, we're created to find our delight in God alone. And yet sin causes us to believe the lie that God can't and doesn't satisfy. And therefore, we need to look for our joy elsewhere. Wasn't this the fundamental sin in the Garden of Eden? That Adam and Eve should have been satisfied in God and His Word alone, and instead, the serpent tempted them to, you can't really trust God. God's not really looking out for your best. He's given you a bad deal. He doesn't satisfy your deepest longings. Therefore, listen to your own hearts. Therefore, listen to me. This same temptation affects all of us today. And yet Jesus knows our nature. This very command here knows that Jesus knows that we're weak. He knows that we're frail. He knows that we're tempted from all angles. He knows temptation would be strong during our lives here. While we're left here upon this earth, while we're waiting for him to return from heaven, he knew that the battle would be intense and that we'd be tempted to be lured away. And so he says, watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down. Jesus is worried that his disciples would be so weighed down that they would be disqualified. That they'd be so weighed down that they would not be ready for his return. In other words, this isn't just a, oh, they're kind of bummed out or they're a little depressed. This is, this is a, a serious uh, shipwreck of the faith. That those who once signed up and said, yes, I'll follow you, Jesus, are then later on down the road so torn apart, so distracted, so turned away that they are no longer following after him, that Jesus is no longer first in their hearts and in their lives. You think of a runner who carries some weights and it could weigh you down so that you just kind of slink in slowly into the finish line, but weights that get too heavy can ultimately cause a runner to stop running. And that's what Jesus is most worried about. Or a boat that is loaded down with so much cargo that it sinks to the bottom and can't keep going. And so Jesus recognizes that this world is filled with people who are not ready for his return. They are preoccupied in other ways. They're preoccupied with the things of this earth and they do not have their eye on what is most important. And Jesus knew that that mass of humanity that is not ready for his return, that is preoccupied with other things, would be a temptation to his followers. And so these things that Jesus describes here in verse 34 is what describes the mass of humanity all around us who don't know Jesus. But Jesus Jesus' warning here, friends, reminds us that we can be tempted in these same ways. We dare not be on some sort of elevated plateau and looking down and go, how dare these people meddle themselves with such worthless things? Because if we're all honest with ourselves, don't these very same things tug at our own hearts? And so these, the danger for these things to sabotage our spiritual lives is great. But what particular do we need to watch out for? What are the things that may keep us from being prepared for Christ's return Let's look here at the temptations that sabotage, the temptations that sabotage us in verse 34. And I believe we can put them under two main categories. And the first category is this, we'll call it dissipation. Dissipation, we see that here in verse 34. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. The two words I grouped together here are dissipation and drunkenness. The word drunkenness refers simply to being inebriated or intoxicated. It's when there's been so much alcohol that the senses are impaired. Dissipation, on the other hand, uh, refers to the after effects of drunkenness, the, the, 
the stumbling about, the, the blurred senses. It's what we'd call today the hangover. So drunkenness is, you could say, the partying the night before, and dissipation is the hangover the next day. And this, it's been a common feature of humanity for people to turn to alcohol to get their minds off of their fears, their pains, or their disappointments in life. I mean, this is, this is nothing new. This text was written 2,000 years ago, and that very reality goes back even farther than that. Mankind, in the midst of this fallen and broken world, in which pain is acute, in which sin destroys, they try to feel better by escaping their present circumstances through intoxication. Now, the most common form of intoxication, obviously, even as we talk about drunkenness here, is alcohol, and that still remains a very common form today. It's with us wherever you, it's with humanity wherever it is found. But today, there are, we have devised other ways for us to be intoxicated, other ways for our senses to be blurred. We've discovered other substances. We've created other substances. And so, those substances that alter one's state of mind and or seek to numb the senses or provide a euphoric experience all fall within this category that Jesus is describing. These things that, that so blur our senses. And these things, there's things plaguing our nation right now. Substances such as marijuana, shrooms, heroin, fentanyl, and the list could continue to go on that people turn to in order to intoxicate themselves. Now, the Bible is very clear that drunkenness is wrong. It is a sin for us to consume so much alcohol or so much of a substance that would cause us to be intoxicated. And it warns against the allure and the attraction of alcohol. We are not to be pulled in by a temptation and therefore consume so much that we sin. But I it's Bible is also clear that it, do, it does not categorically ban all alcoholic substances. Jesus drank wine and gave great wine at the wedding in Cana. Paul advised Timothy to take a little wine for medicinal purposes. And Psalm 104 verse 15 says that God has given wine to gladden the heart of man. But the Bible is very clear. Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery. There's a big difference between enjoying a little bit of alcohol and getting drunk. Jesus' warning here is in verse 34, Luke 21, is not simply that we wouldn't get drunk with alcohol. We can't just limit it just to an alcoholic prohibition. But I believe it describes a broader temptation that is, that is true for mankind. He's speaking about our hearts being enslaved to the pleasures of this earth, the things that make us feel good. And this often happens when we consume these things in excess and in indulgence. It happens when we can be unhappy with life and we can turn to these other things instead of turning to God. We turn to the physical instead of the spiritual to heal our brokenness. Friends, these things make us feel good for a time. They might numb us. They might turn our attention away. But they never last. And so we have to keep going back to them. Time and again, we need more and more in order to numb our senses, and therefore we become enslaved. We continue to fill our lives with them. And friends, this is what the world is enslaved to, is simply trying to fill their lives with more and more pleasure. 
But even us as believers can be tempted in this direction. The great pastor from a prior century, J.C. Ryle, appropriately warns us this way. He says, the exhortation before us should teach us the immense importance of humility. There is no sin so great, but a great saint may fall into it. There is no saint so great that he may fall into great sin. Friends, we must be on the lookout. Jesus says, watch out that your hearts are not weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness, with the pleasures of this life that would tempt us, that would enslave us to the degree that we get off track, to that would shipwreck our faith, that would sabotage us, to turn our hearts away from following Christ truly. And so I ask you this morning, what are the excessive pleasures that tempt you? We have a diversity of people in this room this morning. We are all tempted in a diverse ways. But we need to identify what are the things that particularly tempt us. Of course, you talk about excessive pleasures. You can ask, is it entertainment? The ever-ready entertainment that's in our pockets, on our TVs, on our computers, everywhere we turn. We can binge watch movies, TV shows. We can play endless hours of video games. We can turn to illicit novels. We can turn to social media and the incessant scrolling and hit that that gives us. The entertainment industry is all centered on trying to hook our hearts. And we've got to be on the lookout. We've got to watch out, as Jesus says, that our hearts are not weighed down or not caught up into those excessive pleasures. Or you take the excessive pleasure of sex illicit relationships, fornication, adultery, or the ever-rampant temptation of pornography? Is it food for you? Do you have excessive food and drink to where this pleasure that you gain from that causes you to, to overindulge? We live in a land of abundance, and we can thank the Lord for that. But there's a way that that can be a temptation for us to go too far, to grab our hearts that we must have, that we can't do without. Friends, these physical and sensual pleasures that are before us can be enjoyed in the right way. It's not that all these things must be out of our lives. We never should watch another ounce of TV. No. There's a way to enjoy them rightly, but they can also be the grenade that sabotages our spiritual life and too many Christians allow it to get too far in their life before they realize the effect that it's having upon their hearts and that's my concern this morning. And particularly, my heart is heavy for you young people, you teenagers, you young adults growing up in the church. You've heard a lot of great truth. You know the, the path you are to walk in. And yet this world is oriented towards hooking your hearts young and early that you would be locked into many of these things that I've already named this morning. That you'd be tempted and lured and pulled into these behaviors. That you would be pulled into these substances. That you would be hooked and enslaved to them that your dollars might continue to go to these companies and these industries. 
I say a warning to you this morning to recognize what is happening to your heart, to recognize what is taking place, what is weighing you down, what is consuming your heart and your affections. Again, we're not saying all these things are bad. We're just saying you gotta look at what, what's happening to your heart. Where are your affections driven towards? And recognize that you must be watching out, that you do not get so consumed into these things that your hearts are weighed down and your spiritual life is made shipwreck. Because you see, friends, dissipation and drunkenness, while there are often physical dynamics at play to the dependency, to the addictions, the enslavement, it is fundamentally a spiritual problem. It's fundamentally a problem of the heart that calls for repentance of sin. That's where it must begin. And so I ask you this morning, where are the places of excessive pleasure that you might need to repent of this morning? Where have you gone too many, far, too many steps down a certain path? Friends, we can take a thousand steps away from Christ, but it only takes one to get back to him. Turn now. Repent of your sin today and find the life in Christ in walking in holiness and righteousness. That you might be ready for when he comes back. You can be ready today. And so I ask you all this morning, are you guarding your hearts against the intoxicating influences of this world? Or have you allowed your hearts to be weighed down? But this is the second thing we need to be on the lookout for. A second temptation, not only dissipation, but secondly, distraction. Distraction. Jesus calls it here in verse 34, the cares of this life. The cares of this life. He says that your hearts may be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now the word cares here can describe either worries or, or anxieties. It refers to those things that can fill our lives, that consume our thoughts, our time, our energy, and our resources. And these cares, friends, hear me, can be legitimate things. I'm not saying that they're cares about sinful things. I'm saying they may be very legitimate things that are in your life, but they can become cares that weigh your heart down. Jesus is warning us that these cares can keep us from being ready for his return. More seriously, they can actually completely sabotage our faith. They can cause us to drift away from that which is most important. Jesus in Luke chapter 8 talking about the parable of the soils, saying that there are four different kinds of soils. The seed lands in those soils and they all produce different effects depending on the, the character of the soil. And one of those soils, the third soil, talks about falling among the thorns. And those thorns, it's the, it starts to grow up and then it gets choked out. And he says, as for those that fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares, same word, and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. He's not just saying that they're hindered. He's saying the fruit does not mature. It sabotages their spiritual life. It chokes out the work of the gospel. And so, my brothers and sisters, this is a humbling reminder for us this morning. We are each capable of being caught in the cares and concerns of this life and being distracted from Christ. Again, I quote J.C. Ryle, he said it so well. He said, there is an excessive anxiety about the innocent things of this life, which is just as ruinous to our spiritual prosperity and just as poisonous to the inner man. 
Never, never let us forget that we may make spiritual shipwreck on lawful things as really and as truly as on open vices. Friends, this is the secretive enemy. We sure, we may avoid some of the great sins, but there can be some legitimate things that consume our hearts and our thoughts and they end up sidetracking us and we're, we're distracted. We're, we're no longer focused solely upon Christ. Our life and our hearts are consumed with these other things. Our hearts are the battleground here. These innocent things go from innocent to dangerous when they distract us from Christ and they become the all-consuming concern of our lives. And so believers, I ask you this morning, what cares of life threaten to sabotage your spiritual life right now? Is it a financial issue that consumes your thoughts and your worries? Is it an issue surrounding your children, such as trying to get them all the sports, the music, the educational opportunities as possible? Or is it a health or medical is issue that can, consumes your heart at the moment? Is it a planning issue regarding your future? These are all innocent, but can turn to sabotage one's faith. Ultimately, there is the danger of shipwreck. And so, church, we must be humbly vigilant over our hearts. Let us guard our hearts with all diligence. Let us be open to the counsel of other people that might see that our hearts and our lives are consumed and they, they say, hey, believer, hey, friend, I'm noticing a trend. Let us be humbly open to those, that, those words of counsel. We may not see what's distracting us. We may think this legitimate, innocent thing is just that, innocent. But our brothers and sisters may help us to see that it's not so innocent after all. And so there's two main temptations that Jesus highlights here that we must be watching out for. But then, after talking about dissipation and distraction, he then gives us the reason these temptations are so dangerous. Because if they sabotage our faith and make us not ready for his return, then there are devastating consequences. And that's where now we see the consequences of a sabotaged heart. The consequences of a sabotaged heart. And Jesus gives this to us in verse uh, end of verse 34 into 35. He says, you're to watch your hearts because that day will come upon you like a trap for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. The return of Jesus, friends, will surprise the entire world. Earlier in Luke, Jesus had said that it will be like the time of Noah or the time of Lot where people will be conducting business. They'll be getting married. They will be carrying on with life and then bam, He'll come back, and it'll be a surprise to everybody. A trap, you know, is like this device that, that an animal goes into, and then suddenly the lid closes, and there's no escape. There's no getting out. This is what Jesus emphatically says will be like his return. And no, notice verse 35. Is there anyone that falls outside the domain of this trap, who this trap is gonna come upon? It comes upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. I believe this, as a side note, I believe this is another textual clue that what's talking about here is not exclusively about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is about those who dwell upon the face of the whole earth. It's not just referring to a battle in the corner of the Roman Empire. This is, refers to the judgment that Jesus will bring upon the whole earth when he returns. Friends, there's a warning here that those whose heart have been overcome and weighed down with dissipation and distraction will find out only too late. 
And I'm afraid that there are some who are here this morning that are unprepared, that have been distracted, that have been weighed down by some of these very things. And you're unprepared. A trap could slam closed today and you are not ready. And so I encourage you, turn today, wake up, realize the impending danger that could come at any moment and realize that there is salvation, there is hope, there is a way out of this trap and that is through Jesus Christ alone. Realize that there is hope in him. There is salvation today. You can have confidence going home today that you will escape this trap and it will not slam shut on you. You will be prepared. And so I plead with you to repent of your sins, to look to Jesus Christ, the Savior who went to the cross on your behalf to carry your sins, to pay for them so that you don't have to, so the wrath of God doesn't have to come down upon your head because it already came down upon his son. He paid our count in full so that we can be welcomed with open arms. So the first step that Jesus gives us here today to be ready for his return is to guard our hearts from spiritual sabotage. Guard, guard. But there's a second step, and we find this in verse 36, and that is to guide. Guide your heart toward spiritual steadfastness. Guide your heart toward spiritual steadfastness. Verse 36. He says, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Friends, we've got to realize what's most important. If we're, if we're going to realize, if we're going to guard against these things that can pull us down, the weights that can sink us to the bottom, and we need to turn away from those, we then need to sit up, wake up, and realize what is most important. We need to think about what it is we're to be engaging our lives in. And we need to remain steadfast on those things throughout our lives. It's not enough for us to just go, oh yeah, I know what's the most important today. Or, oh yeah, 20 years ago, I figured out what was most important. No, it's a daily thing that we must be about. He says, verse 26, the main command here, he says, stay awake at all times. Command to stay awake means to keep alert, to stay alert. And as I said, it carries this negative and positive aspect to it. On one side, we're to watch out that we don't fall into sin, but positively, we're to live as those who've been transformed. We are the people who are awake. We are not the people who are asleep. And so we stay awake. But being awake is not something that we just do once. As I said, it's, we are to stay awake at all times. It's to continue when? When do we stop needing to be awake? Well, it's when the end comes. It's when Jesus comes back for us. That's when we stop needing to be awake. And so this is a call to steadfastness and steadfast alertness throughout our entire lives. We must stay awake at all times. Sadly, too many believers in our country have fallen asleep, have become drowsy, or have fallen asleep altogether. Too many Christians are lulled into worldliness, they think like the world. They live like the world. They spend their money like the world. They spend their time like the world. They're entertained just like the world. They're amused just like the world. And in all of this, those Christians have lost their spiritual clarity. They've lost the sharpness of vision of who Christ is and what he's called us to do in this life. Instead of living soberly minded and self-controlled, they live drunk on the pleasures of this life and give into the desires of the flesh, and I believe they are making shipwreck of their faith. And so church, let this not be said of us. May we stay awake at all times, that our spiritual focus may be crystal clear. 
But it's here that I want you to see first the ground of our steadfastness. How is it that we can remain steadfast? It's because you and I have been transformed. It's because of our identity in Christ. He has changed us. In other words, we are to stay awake because we are not children of the darkness. We are not children of the night. We are children of the day. We're children of light. And the Apostle Paul made this very clear in 1 Thessalonians 5. I want you to turn there with me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. This passage, this chapter, is stock full of connections to Luke chapter 21. I believe it's very clear from reading 1 Thessalonians 5 that Paul had on his mind Jesus' words in Luke 21 or in the Olivet Discourse. And let's remember, Luke, the guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke, was a traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. And so as Luke's writing this and has this material, Paul is reading it most likely as well. Paul is very familiar with Luke's material. Read the first three verses with me. Follow along. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, and then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Do you recognize the similar language, the suddenness of Christ's return? Uh, you don't see the word trap here, but you get that same idea that it's suddenly going to come upon them. The day of the Lord with God's judgment will surprise the world. But then look at what Paul says to believers. Again, hear the echoes of Jesus' words. Verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that when, whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Here we see a similar command, don't we? The, the command to stay awake and to be sober. Don't be drunk, as Jesus said, but instead to be sober and sober-minded. And this day should not surprise us. We should be ready. But why are we to stay awake? It's because, Paul says, look at verse 5, we are children of the light. We are children of the day. Believer, your fundamental identity is the fact that you are in Christ and you are a child of the light. This world is filled with people who are asleep spiritually. They give themselves to drunkenness and the deeds of darkness. But we are of Christ. We are called out of the world and out of the darkness by the Lord. And therefore, we've been given a new identity. And so what is the ground of our steadfastness? Why can we stay awake at all times? What's the basis for steadfastness throughout our lives? It's because you've been saved by Jesus. It's because of his work in your life. He is the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, 1 Peter 2, 9. He's the one that transferred you from darkness to light. And so don't ever lose sight of the fact that you are who you are, that you are a believer in Jesus Christ, not because of your ingenuity, not because of your smarts, 
but simply because of the sovereign and gracious action of Almighty God. He saved you. He made you a child of the light. But we must live like that kind of child that we are. And so let's turn back to Luke 21. We must live like children of the light and we must stay awake at all times. But he tells us the means by which we're to do that. Not only the ground of our steadfastness, but the means of our steadfastness. And that is prayer. We remain steadfast by praying, he says. If we're going to be faithful and steadfast, then friends, we cannot depend on ourselves, can we? We cannot depend on our own strength to try to keep us until the end. We can't depend on our own moral fortitude in order to carry us to the very end. We depend on God upon his power and his strength in order to make it across the finish line. And so, because of that dependence that we have, we pray. And look at what Jesus says in verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength, that you may have strength. Fundamentally, prayer is what? Prayer is dependence upon the Lord. We depend on him to work in us, to depend on him to work in others, and we depend on him to work in the world. The Baptist preacher of a prior era, A.C. Dixon, said this memorable line. He says, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God can do. And this is why we pray. Church, we must be a people of prayer that live each day upon our knees. We stay awake by bowing our heads in prayer. And so I ask you, are you a man or a woman of prayer? Does this characterize your daily life? Are you, do you realize how desperate that you are that if you're going to make it the next year of your Christian walk that you need Christ do you recognize that if you're going to make it the next decade that you need Christ? Do you recognize that if you're going to make it the next hour that you need Christ? This is the kind of desperation that all believers in Christ should have and should cause us to drop to our knees and humble crying out to the Lord that he would keep us. We need his strength to lay aside the sin that so easily hinders us. The sins that we just talked about, those temptations that are so quick at hand, we know in our weakness and our flesh we can turn to those. We need the strength of the Lord to turn away. We need his strength not to get pulled into the vortex of the world. We need strength to live as children of light in the world of darkness. We need strength to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Friends, we each need strength to stay faithful just today so that we put our heads on the pillow tonight still putting our faith in Christ. We need him. You see, the battle for spiritual steadfastness is fought a step at a time, a day at a time. Today we pray for strength. Today we say no to sin. Today we look to Christ. It can be overwhelming thinking about however many years we might have left. Oh Lord, how can I remain faithful through all of this? But Lord, help me just today. And so, believer, don't try to live your Christian life in your own strength. Don't try to stay awake by simply pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and trying to be a better Christian. Recognize that you can't make yourself a better Christian without the strength of the Lord. In order for you to be the believer that God wants you to be, in order for you to be faithful, you need him. 
And he is the generous father that wants to give all the strength that he has to us through Christ. We simply need to go to him in humble petition. So we've seen the ground, the means of our steadfastness. Let's look finally now at the gracious reward of our steadfastness. The gracious reward of our steadfastness. Each day we pray that God would give us the strength to live sober-minded. But our ultimate goal is not just to make it to the end of the day. We want to make it to the end. We want to stay awake at all times, even until the end. We want to be faithful when Christ returns so that we hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. It's as my brother, Pastor Art, repeats often, it's not so much how you begin, but how you end, how you finish that counts. We want to make it to the finish line, brothers and sisters. And the promise of this verse Verse 36, and of the rest of Scripture, is that those who cling to Christ, hear me, those who cling to Christ, God will graciously give as our reward the, the final salvation. This gracious reward has really two parts. The first part is this. Notice that he says, praying that you may have strength to escape all the things that are going to take place. And so the first part of our reward is that we will escape the judgment coming upon the whole world. The church of Jesus Christ will be rescued from the wrath of God coming upon the world through the great tribulation. Next week, we're going to look at this in depth, what has been called the rapture of the church. But for now, the main point to see is that Jesus says that when the disciples of Jesus finish their race faithfully, Jesus will finally and completely save them. They will escape all these things that are going to take place. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that the unbelievers will not escape. But here Jesus says believers will escape. And so the second part of our reward, the first is that we'll escape the judgment. The second part is that we will be able to stand before the Son of Man. That's the last phrase of verse 36. That we'll praying that we may have strength to stand before the Son of Man. You see, instead of being judged at the judgment seat of, of Christ, we will be welcomed into Jesus' kingdom when he returns. He will say to us, come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Believer, those are the words we long to hear. When Jesus returns, as I said at the outset, all people will be held accountable for how they lived in this life. And before his wrath, his righteous and just wrath, no one will be able to stand. Psalm 130, verse 3, asks this question. It says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And what is the implied answer to that? It's that no one could stand. If the Lord is to pull out a clipboard with all of the, the sins and each one of us were to stand before him, all of us would have a dirty, full record. None of us would have a clean slate. No one would be able to stand. And yet here, verse 36, there's a promise that believers in Christ will be able to stand before the Son of Man, before Jesus Christ when he returns. Psalmist chapter, the same psalm, the next verse, verse four, says this, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. This is why Jesus 
is why this verse is speaking about a gracious reward when it tells us that we'll be able to stand before Jesus in that final day. We will only be able to stand before him because God has forgiven us. We will only be able to stand before the Son of Man in confidence instead of shame because of the righteousness of Jesus that has been imputed to us. Paul reminds us that we must give thanks to God the Father because He, the God, has qualified, qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Who's qualified you? Have you qualified yourself? No, it's the Father that's qualified you to share in the inheritance of the kingdom. We don't qualify ourselves through our good behavior. God qualifies us through His grace. This will be the gracious reward given to the saints. And so I end this morning where I began. I ask you, are you ready for Jesus to return? Are you trusting in him alone to save you? To save you from the wrath that is to come? What does your life exhibit? What does your life reveal about your heart? Does it show a spiritual drowsiness or sleepiness? Or a spiritual alertness? Are you remaining steadfast today? Are you continuing to fight the good fight? Or have you drifted from your first love? Church, we must guard our hearts from spiritual sabotage and guide our hearts towards spiritual steadfastness. And if we stand qualified on that last day, having persevered through our lives, resisting the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil, then it will be all to his praise and his alone. Amen? Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this very practical passage that reminds us of how we are to live in light of Christ's return. He could come back any day. He could come today. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. This world is groaning under the weight of sin and unrighteousness. We long to see you. We long to see you face to face and to be transformed. We pray that you'd come quickly. But in these days in which we wait, we ask that you'd please keep us, your people, faithful to you. And we'll give you all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.